budget filmmaking henceforth. Henceforwardly, therefore, too, it was unattainable to hit something <laughs> as strong as this film reached to with its heights of glorious filmmaking craft oh, and God. imagination. What is happening? <laughs> Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Emmett. And I'm Wade. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises when each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today we are beginning our new miniseries entitled Bums uh, Finds a Way. Covering every film in the Jurassic Park series. We will fully spoil today's film. But we will not spoil any future films in the series. Wade, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, Emmett. Thank you for asking. I was just telling our guests before the episode started that mere moments ago, I won an iPhone 13 through an Instagram comment. So I'm very excited about that. Wow. We're going to go meet him soon. <laughs> yeah, we're getting a big tech upgrade soon. Thanks to Sivyakova5490. I assume all I have to do is give her my address and maybe my credit card number and everything will be square. So <laughs> Seems legit. How are you doing, Emmett? I'm doing very well. I'm so excited to talk about this film today. I think it hits on all of the big themes that we always love to cover, plus many more. And we get to have one of our favorite guests, best film critics, Ooh. true visual effects mm -hmm. expert over here. Evan Scott Russell is our special guest. Woo! So happy to be here. So happy to be here. Talking about one of these movies that's haunted my entire life. <laughs> it's been a specter looming over me and it's finally <laughs> captured. It's, it's got you now. It's jaws are in you. What is your previous experience with Jurassic Park? Oh, man. It's probably one of the, like, earliest movies I remember seeing, to be quite honest. Like, my mom is not, like, a movie person, but this is a movie that she just fell in love with when it came out, and it's something that she imparted onto me and my brother, who is also a uh, you know, special effects makeup artist, uh, went on to entertainment in his own right. So it was just one of those first things that was introduced to us, and it, it, it influenced basically everything about what I wanted to do with my life, I think. I think it's it's right up there with Titanic and Jaws for me in terms of like making me want to be a filmmaker. Mm. So it's 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 really always been there. And I was prime audience for Lost World. I was you know, I was just like eleven months old when the original came out, but then when, when Lost World rolled around I was target audience for that baby. So just growing up with it. <laughs> more recently, more in inadvertently, uh, totally by chance at the beginning of the pandemic, I acquired a Jurassic Park Jeep. <laughs> now, when you say totally by chance, what exactly? Does well, that mean? I had a car. <laughs> you know, we weren't. <laughs> I was, you know, so I never thought I would. I, I think I daydreamed for like a week of like, oh, I want to. My parents had matching Toyota Camrys, like old, like 1991 Toyota Camrys. Uh -huh. And so in my child brain, I saw two identical vehicles and I said, there's the park vehicles. Let's paint them like the Explorers and we'll make like a Halloween haunted house of Jurassic Park for Halloween. And I think I fantasized about that for like a week and then, you know, moved on to something else. So then when pandemic is rolling around, 
we're looking at my car, this little sports car that's really not fitting the need as much anymore. It's got some damage on it. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time was just like, do you want to sell it? Have you ever thought about doing something different? You know, just a totally different car. And she suggested a Wrangler. And I'd never really thought about that before. So then for a week, we started thinking about what in the world would I want in that? So I'm thinking like some 1990s, like I, I had like a 2002 Acura. So I'm thinking like, I'm going to walk it backwards, but I'm going to get it something cool out of it. I'm going to go back to like a 1995 or something, but it's going to be a totally different style vehicle. And I'm like, okay, maybe I'll get a red one. <laughs> and then one morning we're, you know, we're up with coffee and she says, this just got posted an hour ago. She turns around her laptop and it's uh, somebody has just painted their Jeep with the, uh, the stripes and it has the logo on it. So it's just beginning the build. <laughs> and, and I just, I'm like, all right, my eyes just light up. And I see how fresh the ad is. And we're just like, okay, it's a few hours away from us. We can go see it. And uh, went down there, long story short, it was pretty solid. We bought it pretty quickly. And for the last two years, I've been building it. Just gotten it into a place where like now I feel like I'm not faking it as much. And it feels like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how that's how it looks when I see the movie, basically. So, yeah, it's been definitely loomed larger. Jurassic Park has mm -hmm. in my life the last two years, totally by chance. But it's been really great. It's been, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, while everything was closed down, drive-in movies kind of made a resurgence. And mm -hmm. oddly enough, Jurassic Park came back to the top of the box office. And so with that, there is a worldwide club of people who own these vehicles and replicate these vehicles. I'm aware of somebody who's trying to actually, they have it and they are re, they're redoing it. They're trying to do like the giant motor home from Lost World. Like they have, they have it and they have acquired Ooh. it and they are replicating it. So like there is a worldwide club of everybody who owns all of these vehicles. They have a relationship with Universal and so they get rented out and go to events and all sorts of stuff. So that was a really cool thing to do in the middle of the lockdown because you're in your car and and everything's pretty distant and you're outside. So it wasn't like I was really around people, but it was still like, oh, there's something we can do. It's like there was weird things like going to concerts in your car. So it was much like that. But we're just going to a drive-in movie. They, I get to park at the front and, you know, people come and take pictures. <laughs> it was a really cool summer. And it's uh, that kind of stuff has waned a little bit in terms of like, you know, the drive-ins. But there's still all sorts of events. And it's just been a, a, a little glimmer of happiness and joy in the midst of everything mm. so awful been going on. So is it like your primary car? Like when you go and get groceries, are you riding it? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. To the bank or, you know, take the dog to daycare or, you know, just you know, any of any of it. Uh, so we have two cars. Uh, uh, it, it's okay. when we're both home, it's definitely not our like go to. But uh, when it's just me, yeah, that is my primary vehicle. That's awesome. That's so cool. It's fun. It's fun. Well, how about your experience with the book? Because this is another oh, yeah. one of our famous adaptation stories oh, yeah, on buddy. Cinema Bums here. When I got the car, obviously igniting Jurassic Park, you know, get more inundated into it and realizing that I had totally bypassed the book my entire life, that I have this thing that's so, you know, it's affected the trajectory of what I want to do with my life in a way. But I've not even followed down the root sources. And so I'm in the middle of doing my show, Illiterate, which is very much about adaptations. I'm thinking about that show and what that means and how we do that. And then I'm going to do for my own just now. This car is in my life. I need to read the book. So uh, me and my wife both, we, we both read it. And it was just a fantastic experience to to go backwards and get an ex, you know an expansion of this story. I started seeing it in totally different ways. Now I'm the other end of it, where I'm like, if I could see a sci-fi channel adaptation of anything, Jurassic Park. 
Oh, okay. There's so much in the book that doesn't make it to the film. The film becomes a bit of a different animal. The the book is very much so like the the blend of corporatism and science and being responsible for that creation. Spielberg peels it back to being like, well, audiences can connect with that through parenthood. So this is going to be about parenthood. The book is much more deep, much more complex about what really society's responsibilities are if we're going to continue mm. down progress's road. There's such a rich bedrock. There's so many scenes that were completely changed, left out. There's so much material that if I could just, man, at one point, James Cameron was attached to, was was trying to get the rights to do this while, before the book was even done, in the midst of the, it, people were, were aware that the Michael Crichton was writing this and he was trying to get it. And I think now after reading the book, what the James Cameron version would look like. And that makes me go, man, I'd love to just to see a different take on it at all. Love the movie, obviously, but it's so solid. It's such a mountain to me that like seeing it in a different way, seeing a character posited in a different way that might be really fun even if it's really cheap and bad you know just like a totally different ellie a totally different grant i would be down for it (laughs) what about you i mean you've read the book too right this book is the first the first like full book there wasn't like a picture book that i read as a child and Mm. wow it changed the game for me It, it took me a long time to get through it yeah so i was really excited about this most of the book probably went over my head then, except the really scary parts with like right. the velociraptors. Right. The like the tangible action. Yeah. Yeah, the tangible action mm-hmm. in the book, which is really exciting. Yeah. But there's a lot of other stuff going on in the book that is interesting but not exciting. You're getting in Malcolm's head, who really becomes much of the trajectory of the Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's it's cool, but it's like if you want to think about chaos theory. And corporatism and how those two things yeah. play out, like, as you go through an- another technological revolution, well, like, that's one thing. But if you're a kid and you just want the dinosaur parts, right? it's, like, a little bit much. But if you go back and read it now, it's so good. And it is all, like, kind of crafted around the same central idea that, like, all of the things that build up to break down the system in the book are little inherent flaws that on their own wouldn't matter, but they, like end up stacking in just the wrong way to get everything going, which is the whole kind of the whole chaos theory thing that they're talking about. One of the most interesting things that I really pulled out of it after reading the book was the Hammond character just being such so diametrically different from the one that you get in the movie. Mm. The one you get in the movie is like this sad Santa Claus that like I thought it was possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that is just so far apart from the Hammond that you get in the book. The Hammond in the book is very cold, uncaring. He's an mm-hmm. actor. He is telling you what you want to hear and ultimately wants the result and doesn't care about anything that stands in the way of it. And this is hallmark in their demise, in the, in the, in the finish to these characters. In the book, he gets eaten alive and... He obviously uh, at the end is crumbled and crushed by the, you know, his dream falling apart, but he survives. I'm standing now at this end of like everything we've been through the last 20 years. And I'm like, man, seems like all the people who were like in business and like read this book and went on to become CEOs didn't finish. <laughs> like, I don't know if Elon Musk has finished Jurassic Park. <laughs> Like, I feel like we could use, and again, that's why I would love to see another stab at it, because I feel like maybe we could use a little bit more of the Hammond from the book right now. Yeah, he gets uh, We should be reminding people of who that is and what Michael mm. Crichton was trying to warn us against, because we really are just like, oh, wow, he's hosting Saturday Night Live. He's fun. 
I read that part of that change was from Spielberg, who was like, he's a showman. I'm a showman. Yeah, I get that. I think he should be nicer. It makes sense for the movie. Again, it's like it's that's so much for a general audience. This is a movie that everybody that can enjoy. So what's a version of that that's not so cynical? That's not so dark. If we change him to the sad Santa that really just like, well, I thought it would be beautiful. You know, like <laughs> eating <laughs> ice cream. But there's like, yeah. And, okay. In his but gift shop. I really want to get into talking about, about him, but I have like a whole theory of the case and I'm, I want to get into that, <laughs> but I need to hear Wade's thoughts, uh, his history with Jurassic Park series um, first before we get into our general discussion. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump right no, in. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I love it, but I, we just need to lay the groundwork here. Yeah, of course. Wade. Okay, Jurassic Park, I watched when we were living in Virginia, so I don't know the exact age, but I was between seven and nine, which I think was the best time for me to do it. And I remember very distinctly the first time I watched it being like the first time I really felt like adrenaline in my body watching a movie. The first time I was like hyped up and running around from how excited I was about something I had seen. And I used to watch it on VCR and I would fast forward through the scary parts, but I would watch it on fast forward. Uh-huh. basically <laughs> that's how i watched it a lot as a kid like me in film school double speed <laughs> <laughs> i think i saw the original trilogy a lot as a kid and watched the two new ones as they came out this was the first time i had watched it as an adult for this podcast which mm, was really interesting yeah. the last time i watched it i was probably like 16 or 17 and showed it to my little brother for the first time even in the midst of <sighs> jurassic world <laughs> uh it never sparked you to go like what what was good once <laughs> <laughs> i think i had gone back to two which which is oh, yeah, yeah. my favorite yeah, 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 yeah. and i've seen that one more recently but yeah i don't know i don't always i also don't rewatch movies that much i did a ton of totally kid, but... totally so that was really interesting seeing it and being like okay well it isn't the scariest movie in the entire <laughs> world <laughs> but but i also got a lot more from it autoerotica i did not get that joke the last time i watched this movie <laughs> no 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 these are the real things <laughs> emmett what about you what when was the time jurassic park came into your life and how big of an impact did it have the impact cannot be overstated the time <laughs> has got to be like when i was five or six years old it's far enough back that i cannot remember yeah i cannot remember a life before having seen it tons of jurassic park action figures and dinosaurs growing up yeah and would like stage elaborate like retellings of the movies across my entire bedroom with them same was like totally into that whole thing and have always thought that this first movie was one of the best movies ever made truly god tier yeah, I, I truly and I like rewatch it every <laughs> I I rewatch it like pretty often because I just think it really always works, always delivers. When I was a kid, we I I had the two cassette version of this. The one was the movie, which I would watch until it wore out the tape, and then the other <laughs> one was the uh, making of, which was almost as long as James the movie. Earl Jones. Yeah, it was incredible, <laughs> and I used to watch that. <laughs> so I knew everything about like how the movie was made when I was like six, seven years yes. old, and I was like, I'm so glad you brought I that up. That's that. influential. Yes, it is. 
Totally influential, dude. I, I that sparked my love of loving behind the scenes featurettes. Like I loved good behind the scenes documentaries that are an hour, almost as long as a movie. And that stuff has totally disappeared in the last fifteen years. I, it's just gone away. This one with James Earl Jones is one of the best ever done. I think about this one, and I think about the one on the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm-hmm. Those are all like yeah. really solid as well. The one on the Phantom Menace DVD, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is like. I think it's like two and a half hours. Holy it's hell. It's so good. That's a good one. Yeah. And there's shocking revelations <laughs> in it. I think, we, I think we went too far, maybe. <laughs> there's, there's a moment where George is talking to the producer, and he's like, uh, sometimes I forget to yell cut, so if it feels like it's going on too long, you can just yell cut. <laughs> like, really? That's incredible. Sometimes I'm just, you know, I don't pay attention, so, you know. Figure Sometimes it out. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just so caught up in the world, you know. I'm thinking about where I can 15 years later come back and plant CGI camels. There's an amazing, actually, there's an amazing sequence where he realizes he can't work around a problem because of the way he shot it, and he goes, "Oh, but you can't move because of that. If you move that, then you." Oh man, <laughs> that was I think is my, one of my favorite parts where he's like, "It's it's it fits together. It's built to fit together so well that." I can't take it out. Like, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, making ofs that just as much of the movie had I not had something to supplement understanding that people brought this to life and that dinosaurs do not exist. Like, contextualize what I was seeing. I don't know what I'd be doing with my life to supplement the movies if these making ofs had Hmm. not been so robust through the 90s and into the 2000s. My friends, Jurassic Park, flop or bop? Should this film be put on a pedestal or confined to the garbage dump of history? That's our <laughs> that's our very nuanced grading system here at Cinema uh, Bumps. It's either Mona Lisa or napkin with, with snot in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it's a bop. Bop to the end of eternity. Wait, who's bopping? Bop who's flopping? Bop. It's a bop, come on. Come on. It was really fun watching it this time and being like, oh, it's a movie. (laughs) Like, (laughs) when I watched it, it was the same thing. I recently rewatched Ghostbusters for the first time since I was a kid, which was another huge one for me. And both of them, I was like, oh, they're movies. They aren't (laughs) the most perfect vision that I had in my mind. Oh, it's not an entire conceived reality that's perfect. (laughs) Oh, it was constructed as an illusion. That's what's so cool because as a kid, you like take off with that stuff. And this movie really does like let you paint in all of the corners Mm -hmm. of of, like that world in such Mm -hmm. a cool way. It does. Spielberg learns that from hiding the shark. How do you make a meal out of wanting to see that thing, the ocean? It's the same thing going on with the coverage of the trees. That's how you make that movie look like it cost $150 million when I think it only costs like pretty down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for it, you can see where the fence stops, that kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's there and textured enough around the frame that it really blends in. And your focus is so pinpointed. And they're so good about where you're supposed to look. Dean Cundey is incredible. And mm. Spielberg is always the best about trying to combine shots with fluid movements where your eyes exactly where he wants your eye to be. So you're not even paying attention if the, the, there's the end of the fence and the animals could get out if you were looking at it. You know, that doesn't matter. 
Mm-hmm. It's some of the best application of best practices I've ever seen. That's what I mean when I say maybe it's stunted filmmaking ever since because we maybe we took some of the wrong ideas out of it, much like with the Hammond character and that kind of thing. But this was the first shot at CGI, so so much of it is still very real. Specific on what shot do we need to use what kind of practice? It is the absolute best of trying to understand Mm -hmm. for this shot, this technique is going to sell it. For this shot, we have to do it this way. There's no other way around it. Since this technology has gotten so easy and then everything CG, just put them on the green screen. The you know the Star Wars prequels didn't have sets. Basically, they never made clone troopers. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. Where I think the reality is constructed, much like we talked about in Blade Runners, that there is really stuff in the frame that exists. Mm-hmm. You have to decide first, not later. I think that we got so laser focused on what the CG could do that we forgot about everything else that went into making that illusion real. To that point, it's funny that the CGI was the thing that shocked everyone at the time or whatever, because when I watched it today, being used to seeing modern movies, it is like all the practical stuff that is shocking to me. Like when it opens with like an actual helicopter flying (laughs) over an actual ocean. I was like, I don't remember the last time (laughs) I saw that in a movie. Right. I don't remember the last time you see like an actual cow being lifted by an actual forklift into an actual set. And, you know, the animatronic, or I don't know if that's the right word or whatever, but the real dinosaurs. (laughs) Autoerotic. Yeah, the autoerotic dinosaurs that they built. (laughs) Like all of that stuff is Stan Winston. I think I, as a child, without knowing it, I was just in love with Stan Winston's work. He's responsible for Predator and Aliens and Terminator. Mm-hmm. He's just done it all. And so he brought to life all these dinosaurs. This is the guy that created the characters that I wanted to see on screen. Uh, he's the common denominator between all of these things. Yes, they share some directors, but not, you know, not one person is actually on all of these movies except for this guy and his team. You can't understate it. I'm watching the T-Rex attack and they're so specific about what the blocking of that is and in what even in the same shot. So uh, when the lights are introduced in the Explorers, Grant and Malcolm see it from behind. We're watching the kids up in front. We're inside Grant and uh, Malcolm's Explorer and he says, turn the light off, turn the light off. In the foreground right above the Explorer you see is the animatronic head of the T-Rex bumping a little bit at the corner of the windshield and then he moves out of frame as the camera pushes forward that moves out of frame and we're laser focused on the other explorer out the front of the windshield that now the cg dinosaur takes over and crosses in front of us towards the other explorer so you have both you have both practices within the same Mm. shot that blend into each other we absolutely did not take that tech we did not take the lesson from how that was made that's such a cool thing Because that would really sell the illusion much better. Exactly. They knew if they didn't get this right, the movie was dead. That's how important this was. While they're making this, they're not sure that this movie is actually going to be watchable. Because if this CG thing, at the time they're planning on doing stop motion, which I actually feel like we kind of just, we just flew right over that. Because I I would love Mm -hmm. to see stop motion with CG blend. Because I think you could get some of that tangibility that you lose with a full CG 3D model. We just skipped right over, said, throw all of the mo- throw all of the stop motion into the trash. And basically, nobody's ever done it since. Basically, you know? <laughs> Everybody's been so dead focused on computers yeah. that we forgot how we actually need to build these things to make them compelling. Well, now you get CGI that is trying to look like it's stop motion <laughs> when they're going back to like old, like the, when they're doing the terror dogs and the new Ghostbusters oh. or... 
oh my God. some of the new Star Wars stuff. They're trying to pretend that yeah, it still yeah, moves yeah. like the old stop motion does. Uh, I, I really, I, I felt like we almost missed a shot, a chance to see what a what a stop motion effect would be, how it would be elevated with CG on top of it. The same way that we really do with animatronics now. Now, if you have an animatronic, it's much less that you build, build out the entire creature. And even so, at the end of the time, they were still very specific. So you might not have the left side or the right side. But now we're getting even less. So it's like, oh, they're only interacting and touching the head, the part here around the eyes and down to the neck. Now everything else is CG. We're moving away where I, I wish, you know, I, I look at the Triceratops scene where you're really introduced to and you're just supposed to fall mm-hmm. in love with this thing. And I'm looking at how the makeup, how the actual creature is made up. Now, apart from its skin tone, its skin tone is really earthy and it's really amazing. The ivories on it. But then on top of it, it has makeup effects. It is damp. It is sick. You see it on the tongue. It's foaming around the mouth. You see... Uh, mucus coming out of the nose and it's in such a textured way it feels totally real then on top of all that you have dirt you just have dirt everywhere because it's wallowing around in the dirt you even in the close-ups when grant is like on top of it and we're really focused in on him you have real dirt sprinkled across the animal to blend it in this is the same team that's responsible for predator when it takes off the mask and it's glistening and it feels like it's a real thing now you go to a Predator movie and it looks like it's pastel. It's like flat. It's like obviously latex. But when you go back to that first movie, it looks like a living, breathing creature. It's wet. You can see through it. It's translucent. It's it's sticky. The sound helps it out. You get that same attention to detail in the creatures in this movie, even more so. And then even zooming out on that scene, like because they physically built it, it is there. Yes. You could shoot it from any direction. <laughs> It is there, actually outside. The actors are actually with it. It's shot on you film. Can it's lay natural over light. it, and it can lift you and lay you down. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I, I, you just can't, you just can't beat it used correctly. And then that for that type of scene, you can do the whole thing with the real thing, and oh, you're never going to get better than that. But for these action sequences, you need these things to move and jump and claw and scrape, and it's dangerous. So. Obviously, CG has a place that is going to be a number one. It's going to be cheaper. But number two, it's going, you know, now we know it's possible at the time. Again, that's why they're so specific about what that blocking of that T-Rex attack is, because if they got it wrong, the whole movie's dead. Mm-hmm. Now it's a lot easier. Now, now we know it's possible. They didn't. <laughs> okay. I meant flop or bump. It's a bop but for we're still me, in the for flop. sure. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's a bop for me. Uh, I love this movie. I will always love this movie. Uh, rewatching it lately, I have all sorts of strange semi-mythological theories about it in regards to the costume mm. design and char- and the character introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So allow me to take you down a weird mm. little Joseph Campbell path and just like get into it. All right, all right, first off, I think this this script is like a is a screenplay with emphasis on play. It is like an Arthur Miller. It is a fable of commercial hubris, of scientific control versus the chaotic whims of nature about like also the ability and like the adaptability of humanity to survive and like evolve, basically. Some crazy heady themes going on and very different from the book, which I think is more about that great chaos versus control in the in the book. And it's your fault. You with yes, a yeah, finger exactly. coming out of the pages. <laughs> yes. Yeah, corporatized America versus the chaotic whims of nature. St- plain and simple, 
that's good for the book crowd, but we're making a movie that we want everyone to go see. So how do we do that? But you want everybody to be likable. And so you want everybody to be basically yep. likable or at least redeemable. Uh, and we're going to follow them. So the first person we're introduced to is Robert Muldoon in the incredible Velociraptor scene at the beginning, which sets the tone for the entire movie. This movie starts with the score of a horror film, and it enters with a a scene of pure terror where this guy gets just noshed by a Velociraptor uh, in a very menacing scene where you barely see the dinosaur at all. The dinosaurs will show up 15 total minutes in this two-hour and six-minute film. <laughs> An incredible use of building up to the dinosaurs. I think the opening is the perfect way to ground the audience on morally what is going on here. What mm-hmm. Muldoon does really quickly is says, human life is more important, kill the dinosaur. Yeah. That is pretty grounding. It's not on the surface. Mm. It's not he said those words, but that's what effectively happens in in the scene. And that should tell you a lot about what we're going to be talking about here, because that decision is comes down to one that I don't think John Hammond would have ever made. Yeah. But Muldoon does it immediately. And this is the first thing of the movie. This is important. This is not. This is where our morals lie. I think it's a big grounding for everybody. And yet that guy still dies. Because yes. even even though he he makes that choice, he, that guy still dies. So you see him, and he's like this kind of scary guy. We've got the lawyer. Then the first time we're, we're going to introduce ourselves to Doctor Grant and Doctor Ellie Sadler, they are. You see them first, and they're like in these crazy outfits. They'll wear these crazy outfits the whole time. They're in a pink shirt and a blue shirt. All of the color symbolism in the costumes to be discussed in, to be discussed in just a couple more. Okay, then we meet John Hammond. The first time we see him, he is messing around in someone else's business, <laughs> and you see just his butt, and you're like, "Yeah." And it's a surprise yeah. that this guy turns out to be a complete disaster. Yeah. I, I like noticed that so uh-huh. hard this time. I was like, "You see this like as an old bumbling fool of a man." Is like the first shot you get of him. And he, like, is always whenever... He's he is, in like, his always own pretty- planet. He's in his own yeah. trajectory so much so he doesn't doesn't have any idea how rude he's being. <laughs> hey, we were saving that! He's always, like, projecting confidence and, and like, being so cordial and sweet and sometimes a little sad. But he's For today, just, like... I guarantee it. He's so straight. And so he's in all white. So it begins to, like, this This color symbolism starts to get a little crazy. He looks a little bit like a Colonel Sanders, except with a Scottish oh, accent. Lord. <laughs> I'm really thinking about these colors now, I mean, I see where you're going with this. Do you? Do you? I'm thinking about someone else who's about to show up in all black. <laughs> yeah. I think you might be onto something here. I'm yeah. Like... So then we get introduced to Ian Malcolm in all black. You can just call him Daddy. Yeah, it is. It is Jeff Goldblum. It's incredible. Suffers from a deplorable, excessive personality. Let's start introducing myself. Or... <laughs> I hope that's how I get introduced. This movie takes its time introducing people. It's like 20 minutes in before the whole main group of people is introduced. And another, I think it's like 45 minutes when the kids get introduced. Yeah. It down. takes that long for the van to break down at the gas station. Man, this is a horror movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's a full-on slasher movie. I, I I thought that for years, but this the mechanics of this film work like a horror movie, and that's why I don't think any of these others feel like Jurassic Park. That's yeah. true. It's kind of like the Alien Aliens thing, right? 
Lost World is more of an action, like adventure movie or something. I don't think so. I, I feel like we never get. I feel like we have not gotten the aliens of the Jurassic Park. I feel like we've gotten Alien Three a bunch of times <laughs> in the Jurassic Park, but not the aliens like or or action. Alien Resurrection and Covenant. We've gotten a bunch of those. We've gotten a bunch of that. Yeah. This one, absolutely, it operates like a slasher movie. It is shot by the DP of Halloween. <laughs> mm-hmm. Incredible. And the shots are really interesting and inventive. A lot of times, even when it's like a static staging, like especially around the raptor cage, the shots are yes. interesting lineups. That's so funny. It's like they could have just shot it like on a, on a horizontal and like had them all played out there the whole time but it switches from these very strange long like tunnel shots of the group yeah and it just like they're all standing out against each other and it's doing that spielberg thing where the characters in the foreground are not the ones talking it's the ones in the background who are talking and you're like watching all of the characters watch that conversation yeah it's so interesting the shot of injured malcolm in the car Uh uh-huh Hearing the footsteps, looking down at the imprint of the footprint in the mud, and then the water starts vibrating on it back up to him. So and we've cool. already seen the water in the Explorer, and we know what happened there. So now we're just like, uh-huh. oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> he goes, I'm uh, fairly alarmed here. <laughs> Talking to himself. <laughs> we gotta go now, now. <laughs> okay, I'm at color costume. Okay, so here's the color costume thing. Okay, I think what they're they're doing here. Hammond is, is many times it's like made obvious that Hammond is trying to like play God, right? Is like trying to use science to elevate himself to yes, a godlike indeed. status by like creating the dinosaurs. But not only does he want to create the dinosaurs, he wants to be there when they're born so that they can imprint on him. We will later see as like they're watching the hurricane, he doesn't think the hurricane is going to hit the island, but it says the hurricane has not changed course. Yeah. But that basically means the hurricane was headed for the island and he had just assumed <laughs> that it would change course and sent them all out into it. Something will instead happen. Of, instead of being like, if it doesn't change course, you know what I mean? Like, he's like always consciously flying in the face of fate. He says, creation is an act of pure will and next time it'll be better and I'll do it right. That's where we miss the setup of the book, because in the book, there's impetus on this needs to happen this weekend, because this court, the court case with the worker that died and everything that's going on, we have right. got to, ha- mm. we have, this has has to happen this weekend. The, the book does a great job of like setting up the covert operation of what's really happening when they bring these people to the island. John Hammond yeah. has some objectives and that's really yes, kind of does. loosely, it's there, but it's, it's, a, it's not really the focus of what's going on we're we're not pulling the drama from that we're not going like oh hammond's kind of like lying to them because he needs this result really quickly for sure it's also because attenborough is so gentle in the role and i think it's an Mm. incredible performance but if you listen to the words he is saying in his flea circus monologue yeah it's terrifying it is it's it's horrifying but because he's so sweet and gentle and has that incredible voice it gives it a lot of sugar yeah I ripped off all these people and they never knew. <laughs> oh, they loved it. They loved being gaslit and they loved paying for something that was totally fake. Oh, I just, I wanted to do it again, but better. <laughs> yeah. And he has no idea. Like he, he wants everyone to be able to go to the park, but he has no right. idea how that's going to happen. Like he has no yeah, idea. The lawyer's like, okay, okay John. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Sure, John. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh-huh. yeah. So he's like a godlike figure of corporatist science, of free enterprise. And Malcolm is there like a devil yeah. of like chaos and being like, here's the truth about this whole situation. The type of control you're attempting here is not possible. Not, it's not possible. And it's like, he's like, it's not going to happen. Malcolm isn't actively sabotaging anything because it doesn't need to be actively sabotaged. It's no. inherently, inherently. He's flawed. warning them. <laughs> yeah. Summed up in the dialogue, you know, that the lawyer says, you know, things have changed. It, you know, we thought we were walking into some, something really bad. And then Malcolm chimes in and says, like, yeah, it's a lot worse. Yeah, uh, they're so far along. They're so <laughs> deep. But what he's seeing is like, oh, my God, it's unstoppable at this point. It's past the point of no return. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's important that by the time they've gotten there, the thing has already happened. Yeah. Like the eggs have already been laid. That's the point. They're ready to open the first attraction. Yeah, they're there a night, I think. They spend yeah, just one, one night out in the woods. And those eggs presumably were not laid the day before and then hatch. So the breakthrough of the dinosaurs being able to mate is like in the past by weeks, probably at this point. And that's something big from the book, too, is that like by the time the people get to the island, there have already been attacks on the mainland of Costa Rica. And that's like there's an investigation going on because of that, because dinosaurs Mm. have gotten all the way from the island like. Adding to the drama, like, we need to prove that this is safe and secure this weekend, right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I just think there's a really cool thing going on there. And then you've got this archetypal, like, Adam and Eve setup with Dr. Grant and Ellie being, like, the archetypal, rugged individual man and woman who are going to, like, protect these children. Be They're neither on the side of, of like, the corporatist science gods, nor on the side, like, but they're being, like, beset also by the, like, the harshness of nature and chaos. But they're going to persevere through good-naturedness, I guess. Um, which is a really interesting thing that doesn't happen in the books where the books are much more pessimistic about like, no, like most of these people would die and the people who survive, it would just Mm. kind of be like random chance. And they're not a couple in the book. (laughs) And they're, yeah. Oh, in, really? in the book, he's much older and he really is her professor and it is not portrayed. It is more portrayed that her and Malcolm have more going on. So then for the adaptation, if we want this, if we're like, OK, creation and we got to back it up to parenthood. So we're going to use these mm-hmm. two characters as our as how we talk about parenthood. So and I love where we find them because we find them in a really uh, intimate moment in terms of their the course of their relationship. But they're like kind of floating. Do do we want to? Do we want to have kids together? Maybe sometime. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Their initial conversation after he scares the hell out of the kid with the raptor claw. This is two people that, you know, they're together, but it's not exactly the most formal thing in the world. But they could see a future here. And it certainly she does. I think that's such a tender place to drop yourself into a couple and for this whole narrative to be about, well, what is being a parent really? What is being responsible for your creations? Is that what I want for myself? It's really interesting down Mm -hmm. to the color theory. I mean, you're dead on him and and I'm I'm almost certain that Spielberg has talked about this stuff, but Ellie and Grant mirror each other. They have on the same colors. Grant Mm -hmm. has the, the, the male blue with the red undertone, two tone underneath with the handkerchief. And she's the total opposite. She has the, the warm orange pink, outset with the blue on the inside they both are missing and have the other 
thing. They complement each other. They have the other thing that the other person needs. I don't want to spoil your color theory, but there's so much that happens with this color theory on their costumes that boils down into where we find them at the end of the movie. It's telling you what this movie is really about. Now, Wade, what are the very brief yes. stats on this movie? Because I feel like we're, we're, we could talk for hours about this and get into all of the different things that are symbolized and all the different great moments. But we should also give the people the down and dirty on the on the film. Yeah, the tail of the tape. We've talked about a bunch already, so I just want to... Let me see. You hit a couple points we might not have mentioned. Jurassic Park is directed, obviously, by Steven Spielberg. His 14th feature film, it's his follow-up to Hook, which came out two years earlier, and it is released the same year as Schindler's List, which is also a big part of this whole production, you know, is that he wanted to do Schindler's List, and Universal said, okay, do Jurassic Park, and then will do Schindler's List for you. And he sort of is producing them at the same time. He's shooting Schindler's List as he's editing Jurassic Park, which I find incredible because the post-process on Jurassic Park is probably the part about it that's so revolutionary. And he's kind of just like dropping in and out of it. (laughs) They're like engineering what would be the thrust of the industry henceforth. And he's just like, yeah, uh, I'm not there on Thursday. I can only be there till five, you know, (laughs) then I'm back in Europe and I'm going to be there for two weeks. I'm not going to be able to come in for those, you know, like it's that kind of scheduling where he's just like, I am completely in a different mindset filming the most diametrically opposed film you could possibly line up after Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to create that narrative, that illusion in front of the camera for real while his post team on Jurassic Park is doing this for the first time pretty incredible to me that that he's balancing the two of those like that and that the impetus on the post process on jurassic parks was what it was and it's not just him i mean it's the the composer john williams it's the same editor michael Kahn. like a bunch of his team is jumping back and forth working on these at the same time (laughs) like think about how different the tones of those movies are and that they both come out so strong is pretty amazing yeah The first draft of the script was written by Michael Crichton, who had written a lot for film for, in fact, he wrote the film Westworld, which I'd always thought was based on one of his books, but it was based on a film that he wrote and directed. It's almost a shame he didn't do it as a book because it would have been so much more incredible that way. And there would have been so much more to go Mm. off of the same way that we're talking about. Like if there was another version of this, everything that didn't make it into the film version of Jurassic Park. (sighs) You know, I I think the same about that. I wish I had a text, a referential text to go back to, to think about more things, to, oh, think about things in a different way, a different light. What was he talking about? What we really only got was that movie. It would have been so incredible for everybody. But I mean, just that same guy and it's barking up a lot of the same trees, a lot of the same thematics. I wish there was like a text, but I guess he's kicking that stuff around in his head and it probably just exits in the form of Jurassic Park. So he does first draft. Second final shooting draft is by David Kep. Got the job for the year before writing Death Becomes Her with Robert Zemeckis. That was his first really big movie. After this, he goes on to work with Spielberg again on The Lost World, War of the Worlds, and Indiana Jones, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And without Spielberg, he writes the first Mission Impossible, the first Spider-Man, and Kimmy, which just came out on HBO Max, which I liked a lot. Score by John Williams. We've never covered a Williams score on this podcast before. I mean, is anyone doing more work on this yeah. movie than oh my John God. Williams elevating it? This is what you should feel. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Yeah. Indispensable. 
absolutely ties the movies together. I don't know why movies just don't sound like everybody's trying to imitate a John Williams because they'd probably be better if they did. I like watch the credits to the very, very end so that I could listen to the very end of the music and see what it does. At the very, very end, it ends on a sour note. Mm. It like ends on like a sour and foreboding sound. It does yes. not end on like a ha- anything happy. There's like the whole ending of the book where they're like prisoners, basically. <laughs> where like they get yeah. off, they get off the island, but then they are detained in Costa Rica and questioned for I feel like it says months. It like yeah, destroys well, yeah. their lives. The kids too, and so like that is yeah. what is waiting on them on the mainland when they go. <laughs> Malcolm dies in a coma <laughs> in custody in Costa Rica after being bitten by yeah. a velociraptor, and and he's like dying of some sort of septic thing that he got from the velociraptor bite. I hand it to Michael Crichton because it is on his impetus that he realizes really the voice of Jurassic Park. The conversation of Jurassic Park is all coming through the Malcolm character. Yeah. So he resurrects him for the book. Yeah, for the second book. Because of the movie. Oh, he didn't wow. see it that way until he saw the movie and he goes, Man, this is really the voice. This is really the propulsion of this narrative. You can't do more of this without this character. There's no more story for Grant and Ellie. They're going to go off and have kids or maybe not or whatever. The story about what is right and wrong here really revolves around the moral conversation now is center on on Malcolm. And so you can't do more without that character. He is the narrative in so many ways. It makes sense. They want to bring him back to do a, a second movie. I've never seen anything like this where to, where an author resurrects <laughs> a character like this just because he realized, actually, that was my voice. That was the voice. Well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle resurrected Sherlock Holmes. That's the big one that I can think of. But that's not quite the same thing, because that was just like, that was a character he wanted to get rid of, and then popularity (laughs) made him bring back. He didn't realize, like, oh, without this, I don't have any more story. (laughs) Right. He already knew he didn't have any more story. Is that why Malcolm is not very active in, like, the last hour of the movie? Is because he gets taken out earlier in the book? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so he's much more present. He's just much more present through the third act than the book. He's just kind of down for the count, and you're not sure if he's going to die. There's this whole really exciting part that is pretty horrifying. His leg is broken, and he's on the bed, and there's velociraptors, like, trying to get in through this roof window yes, yes and he's yes. like somehow he's the only one in the building at that time because everybody else is like out and he is like weak and like messed up because it's been like also the book takes place over a much longer period of time so it's been like a couple of days and he's all messed up and like delirious and already like not doing so hot and the velociraptor is like coming through the skylight there are a ton of incredible sequences in the book that just don't make it to the movie and they try to like They try to recycle some of them in some of the sequels. Do you have other things to talk about for this? I want to get really nerdy about the numbers, the money numbers for a minute, because I went deep on all of the records that this broke and currently Mm. sat. So released June 11th, 1993, it had a production budget of 63 million, a marketing budget of 65 million. In its initial run in 1993, it makes $913 million. 
1993 money. Yeah, yeah, guys. So let's not forget that every piece of dollar information we hear about the box office from 1999 forward is just pure propaganda. Just go look to adjusted for inflation. Those are the real numbers. (laughs) Um, So we're talking about 1993 money. This is real money. It was obviously the highest grossing film of the year. It was the highest grossing film of all time uh, until Titanic came out in 1998. Boom, baby. Currently unadjusted for inflation. It's the 40th highest grossing film of all time. Propaganda, (laughs) yeah. In between Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and Despicable Me 3. That's slander. No, that is... My words are ringing true with every syllable. (laughs) That is a slander and a a, a barbarity, (laughs) a mendacity. These numbers are propaganda. This is entertainment industry propaganda, and this is what they sell Uh you every week to make it feel like you're missing out on the biggest event ever, when in all reality, less people are going to the movies than ever before, and it's been that way for 15 years. Mm. Well, adjusted for inflation, it is listed as the 18th highest grossing film of there all time. There you go. Between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace. Now, ah, that sounds right now, doesn't it? There you go. It just sounds <laughs> like, ah, oh, those are the movies, right? The other stuff is just propaganda. Those, yeah. It doesn't sound like Pirates of the Caribbean 4 and Despicable Me 3 are no! the other greatest People films love of all those time. movies. Just like people love their health care. Well, we in the mayor, we love our health care. Why would you want to show? <laughs> no, don't we fought we we, oh. we we love our insurance companies. Anyway. <laughs> well, speaking of propaganda, it won every Oscar it was nominated for <laughs> three sound editing, sound mixing, and visual effects. And at the same ceremony, Spielberg wins best director, Williams wins best score, and this film's editor, Michael Kahn, wins Best Editing, all for Schindler's List. But, you know, I feel like the fact that they have done both of them in the year is playing. It sounds like, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he did Gone with the Wind and he flew in and did the rest of Wizard of Oz. Same guy, same year. Whoa. I forget. I'm, Whoa. I, I'm so sad that I forgot his name wow. right now. But uh, yeah, it's incredible. Same year, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz. That's all I got, Emma. Is, are there any other story things you want to talk about? Um, well, I don't have anything to say in, in terms of summary, but I just want to round out your little records keeping there by talking about the mm-hmm. other top grossing films of 1993, a segment we've not had in a while, but one that I think is fun mm. for giving a little cultural context. Okay. Okay. Um, so number one, Jurassic Park, like you said, number two, Mrs. Doubtfire with $441 million. Whoa. Number three, The Fugitive with $368 million. Yes. $368 million. Schindler's List at number four with $321 million. The Firm with $270 million. Indecent Proposal with $266 million. Cliffhanger with $255 million. Sleepless in Seattle with $227 million. Philadelphia with $206 million. And The Pelican Brief coming in at a paltry $195 million dollars that is the year it was the year of the serious legal drama and and steven spielberg (laughs) that's that's what it was it's almost like you used to go to the movie theater and like have your choice of like really well-conceived film (laughs) (laughs) what is cliffhanger because i have at least heard of all those yeah yeah there's a couple i didn't recognize but most of it was like a good class (laughs) 
I mean, I I have a theory about what cliffhanger is okay, about. Okay, wait, what's but... your theory? Because I've got it pulled up on Wikipedia here. What's your theory? Oh, it's about people, I don't know, rock climbing, climbing a cliff. I okay. Assume. It's a 1993 American action thriller film directed by Hen- Rennie Harlan, starring Sylvester Stallone, John Lithgow, Michael Rooker, yeah. and Janine yeah. Turner. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Stallone and Lithgow together. Put me back in 1993. That's a sale. I go see that. <laughs> yeah. To capstone your color theory in the third act, where we where we already talked about, they are uh, Ellie and Grant are the inverse of each other. Throughout the plot of the third act, they get dirtier and dirtier until they become the same color. When you look at these characters mm. on the screen, when Ooh. they arrive back to the. Uh, the uh, uh-huh. visitor's center, they are the same color now. They have now traversed, they understand what responsibility and parenthood looks like. They get it. It's all through color in the wardrobe and you're dead on and that's not a mistake. Is They're, they're, they're trying to hone into like, oh, maybe they would be good parents together. That's what this whole movie is trying to get you to kind of feel and understand like, oh, the impetus of parenthood and what it means of your responsibility of your creation and then to relay that into the Hammond character and his utter failure. And it's his responsibility. He created it and he needs to take responsibility for it. Those are all the themes working through it. And you get that when you see visually on screen, subconsciously, these characters now, they are a solid piece. They're not the two people missing the other thing the other one has. They now are a solid unit. They are parents. That's very, mm-hmm. very beautiful. You're right on the money. And this is, this, is what, this is what filmmaking does that a book can't do. This is never said. This is displayed just through the work of in a really, a really, really good uh, costume makeup department and a director and uh, a director who's knowing how he's wanting to say things other than the dialogue. Also, the kids hmm. are wearing little like send up costumes of what Dr. Grant and Ellie are wearing yep. as well. Yep. You're supposed to subconsciously feel all this. You're, they're, they're, they're the surrogate children. This is the trial run. Kids are leaving the, the movie going like oh, that they are a family. That's what they yeah. really see at the end. Now Grant has the mm-hmm. kids cuddled all over him in the helicopter going back. That is the image that Ellie never thought she would ever see. What do you think the pelicans mean before we close out on that stuff? I guess life will go on. I, there's a lot you could you could infer from that. But that while things will get insane and crazy and out of hand, that in some way, as Malcolm has said, life will break through violently, dangerously if it needs to, but life will will continue. And you see that, I guess you're supposed to feel the maternal, the par- the parental thematics with that too, because it's a flock of them, was right? So, and they're heading away mm-hmm. from the island just the same. So I think, I think that's, you know, it's, I don't. I would love to see what Spielberg says. Like, well, I really hope that you got this from the job, but it's got to be somewhere in there, you know. Yeah. Well, wait. Is there any more behind the scenes drama we should get to before MVP, or did you drop all of it on us? I mean, look, books have been written. You know, documentaries have been made. We're not going to cover every behind the scenes thing you need to know about Jurassic Park. No, there's like way better, like fun places to go for a lot of that, like detail. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I will just say to segue us into MVP, I think it's important to point out that not a lot of these actors were huge stars when this movie comes out, you know, and that is partly because of Spielberg saying the dinosaurs are going to sell the movie. 
Steven Spielberg presents dinosaurs. That's going to sell the movie. Yeah. So I can just cast who is yeah. best for each of these roles rather than needing to cast Tom Cruise or Will Smith or whoever yeah. it is. Oh, man, you get to pull in somebody like Laura Dern from the Lynchian world. You know, you get to, you mm -hmm. get to go to these places that you know, typically the studio would be like, well, we, we, you know, he's not Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably the biggest star in this is at this time is Jeff Goldblum and he was in the fly like eight years right. before. So like, that's the level of star right. he is. And you've got, uh, we haven't even mentioned Samuel L. Jackson. Who's playing, not a like, star yet. He's lead. not a star yet. This is pre everything. So he's just, people forget he's in this movie. He's a little character actor in the back of a lot of other movies. He had a whole death scene that was planned. They weren't able mm -hmm. to shoot because the hurricane hit the island, destroyed all the sets, and they had to go back to the mainland. That was just one of the things that they did not get to shoot. So that's right. one of the holes they had to fill in it, is that he's supposed to have a whole death scene with the raptor. Damn. MVP! All right, who is the MVP? This movie is riddled with great actors all over the place, but who mm -hmm. stood out to you? And I can't tell you who I think the protagonist of this movie is, so I'm just going to say... You get one. You choose one. For me, MVP, I think the character that in recent years that's really struck me, and again, like I was looking at it this morning in a way that I'm, I'm impressed with the way that they use the character is Muldoon. He's the grounding, the moral grounding. Oh, he's the moral yeah. grounding for your whole your whole movie. You know, when when he's reintroduced after the cow feeding, you, you don't see him, but his line off screen is, they should all be destroyed. He's right. He knows exactly what they're capable of. And if you'd listen to him, I mean, how many times we need locking mechanisms on the vehicle door? He's there as the sense of reason the entire time uh, in a different way that Malcolm is. He's there with a the practicality. He's like, this is, I've told you this is going to happen. And it's because he doesn't get listened to that he ends up dying. I, I, I see a lot in the character that I think just goes over people's heads. And I think that he's much more important to how you're supposed to feel about the drama of what's going on than anybody really realizes. I also personally, and I'll pitch it here, I think he's the main character of the prequel. I think the prequel, if you listen to their dialogue, they're talking about the nature preserve in Kenya. He's my game warden mm. from Kenya. What if they were trying to make one at the research lab that they had in Kenya and then one got loose and then you have to have somebody hunt it down, Mr. Muldoon? learns everything that mm. you need to learn mm -hmm. there you go so then that's the prequel him hunting a velociraptor through the through the kenyan bush or something? yes exactly exactly <laughs> so it starts with these like scientists that are out of their depth they're in the middle of a naturological preserve and then hammond's on the phone he can't see any of this because he can't he can't know the realness of it so hammond's on the phone in some other place and here's like, oh my God, wait, 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 we have to get somebody. We get the best, the best hunter you can get in Kenya. Muldoon comes in, thrusts you through the middle into the third act. He saves the day. You get to do the reversal of the clever girl thing where he is actually uh, the winner, the victor. So then you set up what happens to him in Jurassic Park by one outsmarting him. You get to see him outsmart one of them. But I think seeing a raptor break out at 50, 60 miles an hour and take down a cheetah and then turn and look at you with a face full of blood would be absolutely <laughs> horrifying in the dark in the Kenyan bush. That's Jurassic Park, baby. That's my prequel. And it is mine. Nobody steal wow. it from me. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, now that you've said it on Cinema Bums, it will be stolen by <laughs> Disney Plus within like two weeks. <laughs> they will be working on it. That is true. It. 
you know, it had to be on Peacock, which means they'll never get it together in time and I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Muldoon, as a kid, never did anything for me. I just thought he was military right. man. Rewatching it, the first time you see him in the daylight, you know, he is military man. He's wearing these really short shorts and he's got his leg up, like wrapped around Sam Neill as he's telling him something, <laughs> blocking him from leaving. Like Sam Neill is standing inside Muldoon's crotch. You're like, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a they're lot going lethal on. They're lethal at eight months. The, right there. That prequel. I, they're lethal uh-huh. at eight months. And I uh-huh. do mean lethal. Uh-huh. That's what he's saying when he's hunched up. Uh-huh. That leg. <laughs> and, and, yeah. every, every line the character says, you could just throw the rest of the movie away, pull out all his lines and look at the information that he's really giving. A really overlooked part. I'm so glad that you said it because that's how I saw it. He's just a military man. He's a game, blah, 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 blah. But he's so much the voice of reason. There's so much there. And he's so important to the operation on the park that I don't think any people really yeah. appreciate. Like, you look at him and you can tell this man is such a serious badass. Yeah. And the level of fear that he has for the Velociraptors yes. helps with that whole with like the whole mythology around them so that yeah. by the time they you, they break out and you see them in the last 30 minutes of the movie you're prepared to be absolutely terrified. I want a whole movie that depicts exactly how he garnered all of this particular knowledge so that when you forget the very first shot of him in profile backlit with people rushing to the cage you know everything yeah. that he is bringing to this moment. You have been with him and you have seen how bad this can go. And it's about to go bad again. I I think that there's a way to Rogue One this and give the Muldoon character such a gusto going into Jurassic Park that it would even be more shocking if you were watching it in that way that he dies at the in the into the third Mm -hmm. act of Jurassic Park. That would be unbelievable to you. Then you get to elevate Clever Girl in a way that I I think it could be pretty cool. I digress again. His death, I feel like, is also the most like vicious, visceral oh, yeah. thing you see. I think her jumping on him and and it's still and it's still so artfully done. There's no blood, and it's obscured by the leaves at just the right moment. It's got just the right foreground play. It's just good enough for as a slasher movie for children. All right, Wade, who's your MVP? This is tough because there are a lot of great performances in this I want to talk about, but my MVP would be Laura Dern. I think that she's so radiant and brings such like a warm energy immediately when you see her. She has some of the best lines. I think the whole woman inherits the Mm -hmm. earth exchange is incredible in her performance there. She has some of the best action beats. I think her running to get into the compound to turn on the lights is like maybe the most thrilling the action is in the whole thing. It's it's like you were saying, Evan, like you buy into that relationship between her and Gran. And that is always what has grounded me. It's really saying Ellie is ready, but she's not sure if he is. Mm-hmm. And that's a really delicate, tender moment to come into that relationship. I think that without her empathy, without Laura Dern, I don't know if the impetus on the Grant character plays. You have got to have such a perfect woman that's just kind of waiting for the man to just decide Without her being so perfect, the drama with Grant doesn't really come across. By the end of the movie, you were like, they are a family, basically, you know? Uh, and if, mm-hmm. if you weren't wanting that subconsciously the entire movie, it wouldn't work. And, that, and I think that really is just because of Laura Dern and the magic she, she brings to it. That's why she gets cast yeah. as mom now and everything. And I'm for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Love it. Love her in this. Emma, MVP? 
Well, I guess it has to be Jeff Goldblum as <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> Malcolm. Then I mean, it cannot mm-hmm. be anyone else. No one has ever looked as as, as no one has ever looked as good as he <laughs> looks when you first see him on on the helicopter. That is incredible. <laughs> Well, he looks even better when he is, for no reason, gratuitously <laughs> topless yeah. throughout the third act of this movie. Sweaty. <laughs> looks oh so my good. God. There's a great moment where he, like, squeezes Hammond's uh, knee when they're on the helicopter. Yes. Oh, Hammond, yes. like, smacks him away and then smiling. <laughs> He's like, please don't. He's, like, flirting with everyone in the, in the helicopter. He's tugging on her hair. <laughs> so, like, tugging, oh tugs on her hair. Plays with her hand. Yeah. He is incredible. I, I think Crichton discovered he was the MVP. <laughs> he, he would not work if it was not Jeff Goldblum doing it. Mm-hmm. Because it's such like an yeah. arrogant, I told you so, like, right, I'm right. right. And I already I knew how all this was going to end and nobody listened to me. Right. right like all that right. stuff. So easily anyone else would have just been a complete... Like, you know, he's got to be able to deliver the boy I hate being right all the time as the T-Rex trounces out from this cave. <laughs> it's like that line could be delivered in a way in which like he believes that, you know, like it, it, he he brings such a uh, he brings such the right amount of levity to it in just the right way and just the way that uh, Goldblum it does yeah. Yeah, yeah. without that flicker. It would be a very different thing. It's the same thing as Hammond and even a little bit Muldoon. Yeah. Like the charm is rounding out the edge on the page to make you actually love the character. Yeah. Especially when the characters are so archetypal too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think their performances are much more nuanced and interesting to watch than, than like you said, it comes across. Uh, another performance I just want to give a shout out to Yes, while we're here. Ariana Richards as Lex, oh God, the girl. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think she is really good. She has like her whole mini arc. And for me, like the biggest get hype moment is when it's like, it's a computer. Yeah. Yeah. Someone's got to do the computer work. And it zooms in on her and her whole arc and her relationship with Grant and her brother. Like she sells so much stuff. She, and, and to work in a horror capacity, her scream is incredible. She, mm-hmm. as an, as a young actress, she knocks it out of the park in ways that is just intangible. I mean, I, I love the guy the guy that plays Timmy. I forget his name, but, you know, he's still an actor. He was in Bohemian Rhapsody as one of the band members. But she brings <laughs> such an energy, such a tenacity to just her expression. The fear that she brings to it is unlike almost any horror movie I would go to. She looks absolutely petrified in a, in, in a real way that I just, you don't find... You don't find children that willing to access that part of them for fun. I have no idea why she did not continue acting. <laughs> I, I, I really am baffled, but she seems really happy. So, <laughs> In that scene when, she, when it looks like Demi's electrocuted, she is like yeah. in the third stage of grief. I mean, she's, she's yeah. like weaving she's like deep in that and like it is selling it's like the fact that she is that freaked out selling everything you're so right you could never expect more from a child actor i mean she is as good as anybody and even her whole little arc of her being a vegetarian and learning that some of the dinosaurs are vegetarian and like starting to see a little bit of the beauty of nature yeah (laughs) 
my man to me is invincible in this movie. I mean, the kid survives so much. <laughs> I don't like trees. I don't mind them. Yeah, well, you weren't in the last one. So yeah. beautiful. When he gets zapped, he gets zapped, <laughs> and he's just, like, walking around. He's just walking around with his arms <laughs> out and his hair, like, wackadoodled. I love he carries that energy into the into the buffet scene. He's still like a little yeah. frazzled, but like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and their sequence in the kitchen is one of the most incredible, incredible sequences. Oh uh, yeah, we don't oh, even yeah. need to talk about it. As I mean, if you oh, want, if you don't think that Jurassic Park is a proto slasher film, just go look at that right. scene. Mm-hmm. So amazing. All right, we finished up our our MVP. Our final thoughts. Final thoughts. Well, first of all, first time we see Dennis Nedry, Wayne Knight, who we haven't even talked about. He was almost my MVP because I'm like, without him, you don't get any of the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 that is so true. When we first see him at the brunch, he, I, he was dressed <laughs> in an outfit I would wear on a summer day in Atlanta. It was a cold, sobering moment of realization as I'm looking at Dennis Nedry, and I'm like, I own that outfit. <laughs> Yeah, when you like realize that if you were to be one of the characters in a movie, that you're like the worst one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, been there. <laughs> Nothing I hold against the movie, but I watched the streaming on HBO Max, and the sound mix was really weird. Mm. I don't know if anyone else has experienced. I was watching this. on HBO Max this morning, and I didn't notice, but I wasn't exactly like I was like it wasn't like I was sitting down to reviewing last night or something. I was you know making coffee and yeah. kind of thing, so I didn't notice the mix. But now maybe I'll go listen to it. In ours, the the roars were so loud, and then the dialogue, a lot of which is mumbled mm. by Goldblum and Neil. I mean, it was like almost inaudible <laughs> without sort of jumping between 60 and 40 back yeah. and forth depending on the scene so those dinosaur roars are just supposed to be terrifically loud that's the whole gag i mean yeah sh- uh, shouts to all the sound people who oh worked on this too because like the roars are incredible yeah have you do you know what a t-rex sounds like <laughs> what, what do you yeah. think it sounds like well, I I just I'm just poking fun at like how ubiquitous and like commonplace and boring this the roar is, but like the the task to go out there is like well the dailies the footage here is just a machine going <laughs> just squealing, so it has you have to back it up with the sound. So you're tasked with just going and retrieving a T Rex roar. Yeah, make that. What's that sound like? Come back. That's your job. And if it's not good, we'll find someone else. So I'm just like, and it's become so commonplace and so just in the zeitgeist of our culture that it's like, no, seriously, imagine now, okay, you have to go get a T-Rex roar. It has to sound totally different, entirely different. Can't sound anything like that. That would be really challenging. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Uh, My final, final thought is that I know there's a lot of cynicism about the sequels, even from us, I'm not absolving us of that. I know that sort of the general consensus is it gets worse every single time they make another one of these movies. I like that Paul McCartney meme where he's got his hand, his arms out and he has these like children underneath his arms that like they're all different heights and it's uh-huh. like he's Jurassic Park and so you have all the like the shorter <laughs> the, sh- the shorter ones and then like Lost World almost comes up to his arms like. <laughs> But I would say having watched the two most recent Jurassic World movies when they came out more recently than I had watched those, going back to this, I saw a lot of connections that I didn't Mm. before. 
in terms of plot and themes and characters. Uh, like some stuff that felt totally out of nowhere in the new movies, I felt had some sort of grounding in mm-hmm. this movie going back and watching it. So I'm excited to talk about these all in a short succession, watching them back to back and and break some connections even to the ones that nobody really loves or doesn't have as much artistic value as right, this first right. one. You know, I think it still connects back. I mean, I still enjoy them. I, I, mean, I got to say out, outright, like if I don't enjoy one, it's like Fallen Kingdom. But other than that, like they're they're fine. But, you know, you know, mm-hmm. they're fine. We saw we went to we went to totally. Jurassic World together. We walked out going like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess we should say much about this. But I want to say that Evan and I went and saw Jurassic <laughs> World. Turned down an invitation to a party because just the two of us were, we were going to on a date. Jurassic World. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then uh, all of our other coworkers who went to that party at the summer camp we were working at got fired. <laughs> so we did it. We kept our jobs because yeah, of Jurassic we did, World. We went so moral of the story is thing. watch movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And we, you know, it was fine. And we got back the next morning. It was like, what happened? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, they're fine, but. I don't know. I don't want to rag on him. Hey, if you haven't watched this since you were a kid like me, go watch it. Cause might, yeah, a lot yeah. More out of it. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. If you've never seen it, you should also go watch it for the first time. It's probably it's more of a movie movie than it is like a kid's movie about dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. that's what the other ones become more about. They realize that that's what's selling tickets and that's what kids want to see. But this one is has a way more going on. Okay. Are you guys ready for the quiz? I'm super excited. Yee. Alrighty. I'm going to read you the name of a dinosaur that was in Jurassic Park, according to IMDb Trivia. And you're going to tell me whether that was a dinosaur that was actually from the Jurassic era or from one of the other two dinosaur eras, the Triassic or Cretaceous. This is terrible. True dinosaur trivia time. Oh, Oh, God. And which of the three again? Okay, Triassic, which is the early one, Jurassic, which is the middle one, or Cretaceous, which is the last one, when they all died. Okay. And it was a long time, y'all, like an incredible, a a long, a time so long that I can't even begin to explain to you how long it was. It's 200, wait, 160 million years or some crazy amount of time like that, which is unreal. But here we go. Parasaurolophus. Cretaceous. (laughs) Cretaceous. <laughs> Triassic. That is correct. We've got a one one point for Evan. Yay. It was from the late Cretaceous. That's the one with a like a thing coming out the back of its head, like a space alien. Alright. Next up we've got Baryonyx. Triassic. Um Cretaceous. Oh, Wade, you're correct again. Got another Cretaceous. Next one up is a Hererosaurus. I've not recognized no. any of these. Yeah. Where was this? You said it's in the movie where? <laughs> Apparently on that little like thing where the key gets the embryos out of. Oh. Oh, it's just listed? It's just a name listed? It's a deep dive, guys. It's a, we're getting it. Okay, then I'm going to say that one is Jurassic. Uh, how about you, Evan? Yeah, I think Jurassic. All right, you're both wrong. It's Triassic. Ha-ha! <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. Next up, it's Segosaurus. Ooh, Cretaceous. Triassic. Oh, once again, it is the Jurassic period. Okay, I think we've got Evan with two points, Wade with 
what one? I think only one. Only one? Okay, so it's two to one. We've only got a few more to go. A Compsognathus. Oh, uh Jurassic? Yeah, I was thinking Jurassic too. Oh, that's a point each. Yay! Alright, Pteranodon. When do you think the Pteranodon was around? Oh no. Cretaceous. Pteranodon. Triassic. That's correct for Evan. It's now four two. Okay, now it's four two. Okay. We got a Tylosaurus, which apparently was a sea monster. It says it would have been big enough to eat the entire cage that you go down in to visit sharks with. Oh. Wow. Uh, Triassic? Um, Triassic. Early. Early sea monster. $501. (laughs) (laughs) $503? $499. It was the Cretaceous. These things are horrifying. All right. (laughs) Trodon. The last one. This sounds like a Pokemon. It was a bird-like dinosaur. I'm going to say Jurassic. I'm just going to say Jurassic. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to speak my truth. I'm going to say Cretaceous. Nice, safe, middle middle ground Cretaceous. Wade, that is correct. You have won the game. What? <laughs> that's, not, <laughs> that's not... In the time-honored tradition of he who wins last wins most. No! Okay. <laughs> you both you're both winners. You're both winners in my book. This quiz has been not for oh a grade, God. but merely for the sick fascination of our of our fans and listeners. <laughs> Evan, I've got a question for yeah. you. Before you go, are there any things any projects, um podcasts or things that you're working on that you would like to plug oh, at yeah. this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I have my illiterate podcast I do with my buddy Taylor Zablowski where we uh, we tackle adaptations. So that is a weekly show where you can find me at. And I will pass you guys along my link tree, which has all of my stuff on it. it has my has my oh, podcast yeah. on it. It has my films uh, on it, so you can go and see the Whoa. things that I have made. Yeah, you can find all that with uh, with all the show notes. I suppose I'll send that to you guys. I most recently have just finished a, a little short film back in December, so I'm still Whoa. still placing that one. If you want to see it. Go on my link tree and send me a message. And I'll send you the password. Cool. Yeah, that that's uh, that's what's going on with me right now. Everything's going good. Check out my show. Thanks for asking. Uh, how about the the Jurassic Park Jeep? Oh yeah, Adventures? if you are interested in my Jeep, it has its own little Instagram. TJJP18. That's all that. It it's just uh, I'm not really big into social media anymore. Really gotten out of it. But in this way, I've got this little persona for the car and take pictures when it goes to events or we do upgrades on it. So it's kind of fun. And anybody else out there, check out the uh, again off of my Jeep, the Jurassic Park Motor Pool. If you want to see all the people that own all the vehicles, they do it all too. They do all the movies, not just the first one, not just Jeeps. But the Jurassic mm-hmm. Park Motor Pool is pretty neat. Up next, we are going to be talking about Jordan Peele's Nope mm-hmm. in 21 weeks. But before that, we will be talking about The Lost World, Mm. Jurassic Park. The Lost World. Wait, The Lost World, Jurassic World is the bizarrely named The Last World, colon, Jurassic (laughs) Park. We will be talking about next. Wait, is that what it's called? The Lost World, Jurassic Park? It is. That's what the movie is called. It was on TV one night a couple of years ago, and we paused it because we realized that we lived walking distance from the street they used to film the T-Rex escape. Uh, it's actually just Burbank on San Fernando Road, and we lived, we could just walk right down there. 
<laughs> been living in the middle yeah, of it the entire yeah. time. So if you watch the movie, you see the AMC. That's the movie theater we go to all the time. There, the Fuddruckers just closed down a couple of years ago. You see all that. The Starbucks is still there. They're shooting shots in the gap towards looking at the Starbucks. All that stuff is still there. It's really cool. They do a car show there, and I hope to have the Jeep there when they uh, do it again. They haven't done it because of the, the pandemic, but I want to take the Jeep and do yeah. the car show like right there where the T-Rex was. <laughs> That's, That's so cool. <laughs> Anyway, thank you guys for having me on. This is a, a ton of fun. I could talk about this movie and this franchise. I could talk about any of these movies for all, all day. So totally honored that I got to be uh, the first guest in the first episode and do the first movie. So thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much thank for, you being for being here. What a way Woo! to kick off kick off Jurassic March. Can't wait for the new yeah. one, huh? We're going to Star Wars it. Who's going to die? I... <laughs> oh, man. March of the Dinosaurs. Everybody, to all our dear, dear listeners who make all of this, if not possible, at least worthwhile, thank you so much for being here. And much like those freaky little embryos in that little Barbasol can, stay frosted. Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Wade Lawrence Holloman and me, Emmett Temple. Wade also edits and mixes the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week.